The world is a new place, and we're all making adjustments. It moves faster and changes direction more frequently than ever before. People feel stuck, unfulfilled, and lost in their lives. I hear this all too often. Where are the answers? Someone please just give me the answers. Well, what if I told you the answers are finally here? My name is Scott McDonald, and I was once just like you. Join me on my process of personal development, pathway of success, and pursuit of happiness. For you see, my job isn't just to ask questions. My job isn't to just listen. My job is to ensure what happened to me does not happen to you. This is Scott McDonald with the Real Experience Student-Athlete Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Corey Chevry, who's a current uh, lead assistant coach with the Ryerson Rams men's hockey program. She is the first female uh, hockey coach, uh, or sorry, first female coach in uh, U-Sports men's history, and is also a former player with the Toronto Furies of the CWHL. Uh, Corey is also a really big ad- advocate of the most recent fad known as self-isolating. So she was very kind to push that aside for right now and join us today virtually. Corey, it's great to have you here. Thanks, Scott. Great to be here. So uh, what's going on in your world right now? Uh, we got turned upside down. Uh, you know, some t- uh, clubs were still playing, some weren't. There was a lot of stuff still to do before the school year was out. Uh, wh- what are you and your staff going through right now during this whole pandemic? Uh, yeah, it's a it's a very interesting time, and I think it's something that us as coaches and our players are both equally trying to navigate, uh, something we haven't really been used to before. Definitely a lot of time to get creative, uh, maybe with communicating and, uh, you know, all the Zoom calls and all the Facebook Messenger video calls, I'm sure are skyrocketed in, in the world uh, right now. And uh, I think for me, I'm just trying to find structure throughout my day. It's, it's interesting not having to go into an office space where you are supposed to do work. Um, so trying to create and add a little bit of structure to my day is, is kind of how I'm navigating it uh, to date. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting too, because we, we feel like we have it all covered and we know what to do with ourselves. And then you know, when we kind of get thrown into the belly of the beast there, it's like, okay, here's, uh, here's where I have to adapt and overcome again for something that's completely out of everyone's control. Uh, so, so what has your day been looking like? Uh, you know, how, how active have you been with the, the club still and with the school and, uh, and then just your own stuff in general? Yeah, um, definitely not waking up as early as I used to when I was going into the office. So That's a luxury. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm usually an early riser. I love the mornings. I love my coffee. And so um, I have been taking advantage of that just a little bit, uh, spending a little bit more time uh, kind of thinking about my day uh, before it gets started. But I mean, for me, and this is something that I've been trying to stick to is I try to do 30 minutes of exercise, 30 minutes of uh, reading, and then 30 minutes of just taking the time to reflect and, and kind of going inward with, with some meditation, um, just some time for myself and, and being really present in the silence uh, that we have right now. And then other than that, I'm, I'm on schedule to uh, do some work from home. I still have uh, my meetings on a weekly basis, uh, checking in with our 
with our athletes is something that has been a priority. Um, we have 27 on our roster. So uh, it's, it's kind of like you start at the bottom of the list, you work your way through it. And, uh, and then by the time you're done working your way through it, you got to start right uh, at the, at the list again. So um, I think everybody's trying to figure out how we work this online uh, class situation as well. Um, I know the guys are, you know, especially the guys who are in, in business and, you know, usually it takes a little bit more of a hands-on approach being in the classroom. Uh, so really checking in with those guys, seeing how, how the switch to online has been. Uh, and then obviously it's, it's tough when you, when you rely on kind of the facilities that you have around you to stay fit and to stay in shape for your sport. Uh, I know that the guys are kind of missing the the weight racks and, and that sort of thing. Some of them maybe not as much, but um, <laughs> providing them with the resources uh, to still, uh, you know, get their workouts in and and staying on top of their schoolwork. It's it's providing them with as much information as we can at this point as we receive it, because as we know through this pandemic, uh, information has been coming on a daily basis. So keeping them informed and in the loop and trying to support them as best as, as I can and as the rest of our staff can during this interesting time that we've never experienced in our lifetimes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely, there, there's no, you know, step-by-step process or, or guidebook to this at all. It's really just, you know, you're adjusting and figuring it out on the fly. It's almost, it, it kind of like, it's, I call it weathering, you know, an extended winter basically, because <laughs> we're all staying, staying in. What's the, uh, What's the priorities of, of your staff right now? You know, you got your your athletes to make sure that their well-being is, is kept in order. You know, uh, there was the, it was at the tail end of the season. There's next year to look into. There's so many things that are still going on. And some of the staffs that I've talked to, uh, they're working vigorously on, you know, preparing for next year and making their athletes, you know, we're mentally, we got to keep going business as usual, you know, mm-hmm. towards the future. And some have taken a, a different approach to give a, a little bit more like, uh, for example, we have an athlete who was with UPEI women's hockey team. They were hosting nationals and that was gone and they've taken the, you know, just let it go. Let the, the earth has been scorched. Let it, let the flowers come back and bloom. And then, you know, we'll reassess that. And what's, what's your staff's and your personal approach been to that? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that everybody kind of has a different mindset at this point of the season for all of those teams who were competing at the national championships that got, you know, canceled right in the middle, I feel for those teams um, and those players and those coaches. And I know what they're going through. They probably have a little bit of a grieving process to go through. uh, So it might be a little bit of a different, different approach uh, than what a team like we didn't make it there. So, um, you know, I think it's really important, like you said, uh, stay focused on on what's coming up. And for us, uh, this time is very important for our recruiting. Um, and so staying in contact with all of those players who are going to university next year um, is a big priority for us. And, and my head coach and I, we chat pretty much on a daily basis about where we stand with our recruits. Um, it's also a good opportunity to kind of reflect on on the season that has passed, watch some video that, you know, maybe if we had to just continued business as usual, we wouldn't have gotten around to, but it's an opportunity to reflect on the season that we've had and where we can progress uh, on the pro- in the process and how we can get better um, as a team and, you know, as a staff as well. 
I think that it's important at this time for coaches to also take a look at how we as individuals can get better and professionally develop. I think that this pause on the world has given us kind of a, the gift of time um, that maybe we wouldn't have received otherwise. So I think it's okay to stop and think and be present in the moment of this is really crazy as to what is going on. And, and I do agree that business as usual has to happen, but I think we also need to try to navigate what is going on right now. Um, so I think that that's a part of it. And I think keeping the conversation open about that uh, is really important. And I mean, I think that the mental state of our athletes, our staff, but even just the population at large uh, is really crucial at this time. I think that uh, having this much time in isolation and, you know, not really uh, getting those everyday kind of endorphin uh, hits that we get by interacting with people face to face. I think you're going to start to see a spike of, of mental health uh, issues and people needing a little bit more support there. Uh, so I think that that is the, you know, staying in shape and, and making sure that we're preparing for next year's season is great. And that should always be a focus. But I think that really honing in on the mental side of, of how our athletes are doing and how our staff and our coworkers are doing is just as important at this time. And that's something that's came up a lot. Um, you know, the, looking back, uh, coaches, the, the players, you know, support staff, they're all coming now and saying, if I knew that was the last game, if I knew that was our last team practice, if I knew that was the last workout, I would have been a bit more appropriate with how I would have, you know, felt at that time. Cause some, cause some come in with enthusiasm and some don't, some are introverted, yeah. some are extroverted. So I can only imagine for those, especially for those fifth, fourth and fifth years who are done, who are like, that was, that's it. It's over. Yeah. You know, what now? And that's a struggle that athletes, I had it myself. Um, and I've said this a million times in this podcast so far, we're all very, as hockey players or any athletes, we're very good at working on our job, which is mm -hmm. our sport, but we're not very good at working on ourselves. And yeah. if we knew how to work, if we did work on ourselves more, which is something that is even in, even in your university career is still kind of hard to wrap your head around it because you think like, we all think that we still, well, I got the world figured out by 22 or 23 or 24. Cool. Um, it's really hard to still figure that out and think, okay, well, what do I do now? I'm at a standstill and you know, there, there's nowhere else to go, but to huddle up in the corner and, and, you know, whether this, uh, you know, to, for it to go past, um, you know, how, did you have many senior uh, students in your program this for this past season, or were you more of a younger uh, team? Yeah, no, we had uh, we had three seniors um, who were graduating and and done, um, and then a couple who were on the fringe of they still had eligibility, but they weren't quite sure if they were going to come back. Um, and I mean, you know, we got put out in the second round against Western this year in Game Three, and. Uh, you know, a series that, in my opinion, um, was ours to lose. Um, and it's, uh, you know, I, I do remember uh, us as a staff saying the practice before the elimination weekend, um, you know, this could potentially be our last practice. I remember us saying that as a staff, um, but not giving really any weight to it because we thought in our heart of hearts that it wouldn't be our last practice. 
Um, but it was. And I think that a really cool thing that came out of uh, all of our exit meetings that we had with our players was that we were all on the same page um, in that we're motivated and hungry for next year and that, you know, we truly felt like this was, this was a year for us to do some damage and in U sport and, and make it to that national stage. And, you know, I think that that was a really positive thing that came out of it uh, was that we were all on the same page and that this one really stung and we knew that we had more and that'll just keep us motivated for next year. And, you know, hopefully, uh, that motivation that we had in our exit meetings uh, is still alive and well come September, um, especially with everything that's going on right now, uh, because it does seem like a little bit of just survival mode probably for a lot of people. So I know that hockey might be um, kind of furthest from the brain right now um, in terms of navigating this this really strange time. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's, like I said, there's no magic uh formula to to make this go away or to figure it out or to prepare or do it right it's really it comes down to the individual which again you know how refiner a view as a person can you be and uh, and i, I want to climb back to uh, you know this where we where we're at now a little later in today's show um here's something that all of our audience because they are younger you know there's someone like yourself has gone through this process you have experience you're living through it right now and I know what they're thinking. Well, how did, how did Corey get here? What, what's her story? So let's, mm-hmm. let's dive a little deeper in that. What's your whole story with your athletic career and your progression and your ups and downs and successes? Let's, let's pour it on here. Wow. Okay. That's uh there we go. How much time do we have here? Oh, I got <laughs> blow, 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 time. There's a financial bank account. There is an emotional bank account and there's a time bank account and cousin, yeah. we are wealthy in the time bank account right okay, now. Perfect. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, I come from a small town, New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, uh, started in, I guess we call, we'll call it co-ed hockey, uh, was called boys hockey when I was younger. Um, and, you know, that's kind of when I knew and the people around me knew that, you know, I was a player, like I could play the game and I could contribute. And uh, I love the sport. And it's funny because near the beginning of this isolation, I watched Mighty Ducks one, two, and three all in a Love row, it. no breaks. <laughs> and I will say like the Mighty Ducks had a really big influential, uh, big influence on my hockey career when I was younger. I was like, oh, I want to be on those teams. And look, there's Connie, she's on that team. And Julie the Cat, she's on that yep. team. Like I just thought that that was normal. <laughs> um, and which it is. Um, but it's, uh, it, you see it less and less now with girls playing on the the boys side, but, um, I love seeing it still. It's awesome. And, and I thought, I find when girls play on the boys side, they form a lot of grit and a lot of resilience and a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, their work ethic is, is through the roof because they're always trying to prove that they deserve to be there and they want to beat the boys. And that's how kind of, I lived my uh, hockey career as a, as a younger, as a younger kid. Um, and then, you know, I, I progressed in the sport pretty quickly uh, to where I was, you know, playing on the provincial team, the under 18 provincial team at, at 13. Um, wow. And then after that, my career kind of took off. I went to the Canada games in 2003 with uh, team Nova Scotia. And from there I ended up, 
uh, moving to Toronto, I got recruited to play in the PWHL uh, for Mississauga. And so in grade 11, my mom and I, we moved to Mississauga and we, I played for the Chiefs. I guess they're not the Chiefs anymore. I think they're the Hurricanes now. Um, I played for them for two years and then I decided to go back out east and play for St. Mary's University for five. Um, and that was a, like, I, I had a lot of personal success with that team. And then in my final year, we won the AUS championship, which was a pretty great way to cap off my university uh, career there. Um, and then I always wanted to play in the CWHL. Um, I remember waking up as like a 10 year old. I had to wake up at 5 a.m. because that's when they were airing the final game on TV. So I'd wake up and I'd watch that final game and I was like, oh, I want to be in that game one day. And, uh, and then I finally made it to the CWHL and my first year we actually made it to that game. And so I thought, I'm sure as a lot of young rookies in major uh in the majors uh think that it's going to be easy and you're going to make it back to that game every year and uh and then it wasn't until 2014 so i guess four years later that uh we made it back to that game and and we we won that game in 2014 winning the clarkson cup and then after that i uh i played for two more years and then i decided it was time to call it quits and you know i'd been pursued by certain organizations to potentially coach. And uh, I didn't know I wanted to be a coach. I thought, you know, I, I know the game pretty well. Um, and I like to talk a lot. So um, I'm a pretty confident person as well. So it just kind of all went, uh, went together. But I wish I knew then what I know now about coaching because I realized I probably knew nothing um, about how to coach the game. So now you know, I'm going into my fifth year with uh, Ryerson Rams, and I've coached uh, simultaneously with the midget AA programs around Ontario. Uh, more recently, uh, got involved with the national team um, at the under-18 eight, level, and then more recently with the senior team. And, uh, and then uh, made my way back into provincial hockey again, but this time with Team Ontario uh, winning the national championship back in November. So it has been a whirlwind of four years. Um, it hasn't been easy. It's been, uh, it's, it's been a, a tough go at times trying to coach full-time at Ryerson, be a head coach of a midget AA program, uh, run skill sessions on the side. Like I, my mom tells me this all the time. I just take on way too much. Um, so, uh, but you know, I love it. And it's, uh, it's, it's been a good experience for me, but it's been, it's been a, it's been a journey for sure. And it's definitely not done yet. So. No, I love it. And, and just the, just so you know, talk as much as you want, cause usually I'm the one that's rambling on in a conversation. So I'm glad there. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that, uh, Eastern Canadian side of you is coming out. It's perfect. And I, and before I forget, I have to ask you this question because okay. like I told you earlier, my dad's side of the family's from Cape Breton. Tell our audience how Cape Breton is Cape Breton and Nova Scotia is Nova Scotia. <laughs> yeah, so there's Cape Breton and then there's the mainland. Um, and if you're 
from Nova Scotia and you live kind of near Cape Breton, like let's just say New Glasgow or Anaganish, which is on the mainland, but not Cape Breton, people will say we're often from Cape Breton, which is not, uh, which is not true. You actually have to cross over a causeway to get into um, Cape Breton, but I'll tell you, Cape Breton is probably one of the most beautiful places on earth. I haven't done the full Cabot Trail yet, but if I do end up going out east during um, this time and I want to self-isolate even more, I might do the long uh, road trip up around uh, the Cabot Trail there. It's, uh, it, it looks amazing. I've been up part of it, but not all the way. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's definitely a big distinction between Cape Bretoners and mainlanders. A lot has to do also with their accents. Uh, you can usually tell that way if you've ever talked to anybody from Sydney, Cape Breton. It's interesting. <laughs> but we're not even going to go there because you know what? We could get into the Newfoundland accents too. And you know what? I respect and I love them all the same. So it's... No, uh, this gives me a, this gives me the perfect idea. We can do a, a micro episode that I like to call uh, where we get really deep, and we can make it for the the student athletes who want to play in Eastern Canada, and how to identify uh, certain accents. That's a show in itself, right there. That is. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> hey, but we can't recruit to Eastern Canada while you're talking to me. They're no, 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 no. We can't, but we have to be diverse. We have to be fair. There's a lot of there's a lot of gray areas when it comes to the legalities of this show. So, okay, perfect. All right, I it's like all good. It. So I love that. And Mighty Ducks. When you talked about that, I remember for years until my probably 16, 17, because that's why I stopped playing after that. Because you know shoulders and what are now called concussions. Uh, you know, had a few of those, uh, but I, I remember as, as elementary as it sounds, Mighty Ducks won the original watching that before my first game of every season that just gets you fired up. You know, I, I Gor agree. Gor Gordon Bombay taught every young kid about life and hockey and how to bring the two together. So that's, that's something that actually our audience should be listening to for all of our hockey players on there. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I, as funny and as, as silly as sometimes uh, those movies are, like when I can't even remember his name, the cowboy, he lassoes uh, Gunnar Stahl before he hits Connie in the boards. Dwayne. <laughs> Dwayne, thank you. Yeah. Um, it's like, as much as those movies can be silly, I can't believe rewatching them now. I'm like, you know what? Like, that is such a great way to explain to a young kid that that's how you pass a puck and you, yep. you know and just like the little funny nuances of of the the movie like when when you know Goldberg is chirping Charlie because he <laughs> doesn't want the puck to hit him and Charlie's like Goldberg you're the goalie it's supposed to hit you Does anyone and else not realize how stupid this sounds <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so I just find it can like as, as silly and as fun as it is as a kid's show, I do think that there's a lot you can learn from those movies if you if you listen and, and for any young kids out there who miss that era of the Mighty Ducks, you need to go back and watch it during this time because well we've got a lot of time and I'm sure you're watching other things on TV. So that would be a that would be a recommendation I yep. would provide. I got the whole box set. I found it in the $5 bin a few years ago. I just never opened it, but since I'm going up north uh, in a few hours here, 
that I'll be packing that. That's for sure. And also it teaches for coaches like Gordy Bombay. He, uh, he changed. He went he from, did. I'm too good for, he went from, I hate the game and I'm too good for this. And no one needs to know about that to probably the, after Scotty Bowman and a couple of the other big boys who are legends, he's probably one of the greatest of all time. I in my, agree. In my non-professional opinion. Yeah. You know what? I, I have to agree with you. And I always think about, it was so funny thinking about Gordon Bombay before he was the caring and compassionate and enthusiastic coach. Um, and, and what his lifestyle was and, and how he, uh, you know, carried himself throughout his day to day, very, very different. And he definitely changed. And I think for the better. Yeah. And I think that's something that's going to happen to a lot of people going through this pandemic. <laughs> so they, they should, they should get uh, a bit of an introductory of what their life transition is going to look like really soon. <laughs> yeah. uh, playing boys hockey. I've coached many girls who played boys hockey in the greater Toronto hockey league. And I have to agree with you. Um, they just have this look in their eye when, because they played boys and somewhere at the AAA level where when the whip is cracked, they have that glare where it's like, okay, coach, I, um, I'm going to do this just to spite you now. And yeah. they, and they kick it into high gear. And I love that fact. Was that kind of like with you when, when you were playing, you're just, you just had that more of that playing boys hockey, that eye of the tiger, you felt more engaged into it. You're just one of the gang yeah. type of mentality. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, every year that I was on a boys team, I was always one of the best players, which I, I enjoyed. And I, felt valued um, because the guys wanted me on their team. Um, but I really loved when we'd be playing and someone would see that I had a ponytail and then they'd try to hit me even harder because I was a girl. But the good thing about uh, girls, I find at a younger age, they grow bigger than boys early on. And so in my peewee year, I was probably one of the tallest girls. I was 5'8 at that time. So um, I, I, uh, I enjoyed when the guys tried to hit me because I would just hit them even harder. And, um, yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I played road hockey and, and, um, uh, like out at the community rinks with the boys and no gear. And we would play full hitting. Like I can still remember, uh, I kind one of my friends, um, Mike Barber, uh, he and I played against each other. He was a year older than me, but, um, he, I kind of caught him. Uh, he was, I caught him on a blind side. I just decided there was a big snow pile there. So I was just going to hit him into the snow pile <laughs> and I took advantage of it and I took the Liberty. And then when I wasn't looking, didn't he get me back? And I just went flying through the snow. So, I mean, I think I did build up a bit of, uh, you know, thick skin as, as a girl, like I, I liked when they didn't treat me any different kind of than, than the rest of the boys. Um, I definitely took a lot of penalties moving over to the girls side of the game because I still played with that aggressive, uh, aggressive style. And I know that, uh, I know that Lisa Haley, she coached me for, uh, through the provincial program. And then at St. Mary's, I knew sometimes there were some personal vendettas that I wanted to, uh, get out on the ice and I took penalties because of it. And I know that she did not like that very much. So, I mean, I think that all my aggressive style of play came from playing with the boys and having to keep up and having to prove myself all the time. 
Um, but I wouldn't change it. That's the style that I still like to play in my senior A league. I don't go as hard, um, but I definitely uh, still like to toe the line with uh, that aggressive style of play. And you know what? I always say to because we have a lot of athletes who who are you know girls playing on the boy side, and parents will say, "Well, when's the right time to move? When's this and that?" I say, "No, that wrong mindset. If you're playing hockey." you're a hockey player. If you're playing baseball, you're a ball player. If you're playing mm-hmm. football, basketball, that you are the athlete that goes under that sport. This is not a male female thing. And mm-hmm. it, because I know some of the most talented players, um, you know, who are like, they're still in high school now, some of them, and they originally came from the boys side and some started in the girls made the switch then switch back. And it, they, they were tops no matter what, it didn't matter who they were playing against. It was just, that's just who they are, that they're just a different type of breed. And that's how you have to, you have to look at it. I know some who say, well, if we do one year of boys, will that make my daughter a superstar? No, no, that's not how it works at all. It's the mm-hmm. person and, mm-hmm. and just the, the overall ability. It's what's between the, the, what behind the eyes and in between the ears. Um, mm-hmm. But I always say, it's just that, that mentality and that mindset. So now that you're leaving boys hockey and you make that move to Mississauga, which I know you know, is back then was very rare and now it's even more common today. What was that transition like for you? Because now you're going halfway across the country to Mm -hmm. to put, to play girls hockey where there must be the uncertainty of like, I don't know about this. Maybe we should just stay with the boys and, you know, in a school we'll we'll recognize and then pro league, whatever, like walk us through that, that uh, part of your life. Yeah. Well, just to touch on what you said about making the switch too. um, I know that, before a certain age, one of the girls that I coached, so she came over to play with me in uh, midget double A. So she played Bantam with the boys. Um, there is a time frame in terms of the OW just to switch over um, so that you can be considered for the provincial camps if you want to move, uh, take that step. I don't know what age it is, but you have to be registered with the OW by a certain time to be able to participate in the provincial branch camps. Um, but I, you, you probably would know that age more than I would I'm not sure yeah yeah for my understanding you have to be playing one year in the in an OWA sanctioned league which is the lower like female hockey league or you know if any of the sports academies that are that are under that sanctioning you need to it's basically that one one year of of getting your eligibility in and then you can go and the thing is too there's a lot of talented say minor Bantam players who they played major peewee in the boys so now their first opportunity for their first camp is gone yeah. And, and then they have to rely on that second year. And that's where they kind of feel like they're cheated or, and whatnot. Uh, I know for, you know, in, in your case, for example, and other athletes who, who come outside of, um, outside of that, um, in, I, I know when they move to, there's certain exemptions, but that's where you actually have to go to the governing body and explain it and see if they'll exempt you from there. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, there is that, there is that one year grace period that I know has affected even some of my athletes and they, yeah. they play the, they play the victim game like, oh, well, we should just be good enough. Well, no, you also have to buy into what your governing body is doing at the same time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, with my transition, I, am, I actually played one year of midget girls hockey before I went to Mississauga. So I played Bantam boys and then I switched over uh, to midget girls for one year and then, and then made the move to Ontario. I just knew like with my skill set my family knew with my skill set that um I could have 
probably stayed where I was and, and been fine um, and probably still made it to the same place that I'm playing today. Um, but the hockey in Ontario was just another level. Like I had never seen um, the skills that some of these girls were portraying before. I never did them. And the girls that I played against definitely didn't do them. Um, and then I was usually better than the boys, not all of them. Um, so they weren't doing them. So when I got to Ontario, that was a big uh, wake up call for me that, wow, these athletes are doing skill development on top of all of their uh, regular practices and games. So that was a big eye opener. But then also starting a new school in grade 11 um, was interesting. Uh, not really having immediate friends at school, having to wear a school uniform, which was new for me, going to a Catholic school as well. I didn't grow up practicing um, Catholicism. So um, all of that was very new while playing in this new league. Um, but I wouldn't change any of it. It was awesome. It was probably one of the best two years of my life um, playing hockey. And I'm still really great friends with all of those girls that I played with on those teams for two years. And, you know, I got my university paid for um, out of it. And, and it was, uh, and then I still got to play in the CWHL uh, where I wanted to play. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a big transition, but now that I've lived in Toronto again for 10 years, um, it made this move to Toronto uh, a lot easier because I had already lived here before. And when I did decide to move to Toronto in 2010, I actually packed up my Toyota Tercel uh, to its limit. I think it was dragging when I was driving. And I didn't know where I was going to go. I knew um, a couple of my friends who lived in Toronto. They said I could stay on their couch for a bit till I figured out where I was going to live. And I got to Montreal, uh, stayed with one of my friends there. And my mom called me and she's like, okay, this is where you're going to go. You're going to go to such and such a dress in Etobicoke and you're going to live with family friends. Well, family really, uh, my great aunt. And, um, I lived there for two years, uh, before I ended up moving downtown, but it was, uh, it was an adventure. I think that I always try, I always uh, make it work. If it's, uh, if it seems out of reach, I'm going to make it work. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's crazy when, when you get into that, cause so much is, there's so much uncertainty when it happens and you're thinking, okay, well, what if this happens and what if that happens? And, and really only the worst case scenario can be just dreamt up in your head. It never means that it's going to happen. And th this is starting to sound a lot like, you know, doing a freshman year at university, there's all this uncertainty in what you, into what you said, uh, before about, you know, there's all these top players. Now I've had a lot of friends who went through that too. And, and even on this show where they said, I thought I was walking into being, you know, the guy or the gal who is going to take over the world in this new city. And then I get here and I'm like, Oh my God, there's 20 other people just like me. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's a big adjustment. And, and, and how did you find the, um, you know, when you got here and you're, you're now playing girls hockey, what was, how, uh, how did you feel about the caliber? Because there are some higher level players in the league. And then there's some who, you know, because it's such a big league by that age, there's a lot of teams that probably shouldn't be there, but they just want to have that double A program where they're trying to put, trying to build their junior program. How did you adjust to the caliber and in, in the game of, of women's hockey? Uh, with the PWHL? Yes. Um, well, it was definitely the best hockey that 
I had ever played, um, ever been exposed to. Um, I remember playing against um, Megan Augusta, um, and we we lost to them. She played for Blue Water. We lost to them in the provincial semifinal to go to the gold medal game. And you know, all of those girls who made their way through the national program, um, it was really cool to play against all of them and try to beat them on a daily basis, um, which, uh, which seemed daunting at the time, but what a great experience. And uh, yeah, I mean, you're always going to have, at that time, there weren't as many teams. Um, so most teams were pretty good, but you're always going to have those kind of bottom end teams that are trying to establish that top uh, top tier female program in their association. So I can respect that process of them trying to make their association as competitive as some of the some of the other bigger associations uh, around Ontario. But it's uh, it's definitely an awesome league. I think it's probably one of the best. Uh, female leagues that you can play in in Ontario or in North America um, and a lot of great talent comes from that league and the cool thing about it too is that it draws people in from from all over the world from across the border um, and across uh, provinces as well and uh, myself and Courtney Shriver um, and Suzanne Fennerty were probably the three first uh, Nova Scotians to make their way to that to that league, which then opened the door for uh, more East Coasters to move into that league. A lot of girls at, at the time that I was choosing, they were going down to the States um, to play at uh, private schools. And I definitely thought about that route, but I thought um, I, I'm gonna go to the PWHL that, you know, we played almost close to a hundred games um, and versus going down to uh, prep school where it's a three sport uh, semestered school so you're only playing hockey for one of the semesters and you're probably playing only about 25 games and that was at that time I'm not sure how many games they play it's now still very similar a little, little more games now because there's more tournaments and showcases available but similar and, and it's actually starting to revert back to them where they're leaving um, there's a lot of athletes leaving those prep schools now to, to go to the PWHL and, and, and bill it here now. And what they'll do is they'll go to like an Appleby or a, or a Hill Academy or, or Everest or something like that to, uh, to get the residency in. So it's, uh, it's yeah. definitely something that they're taking advantage of because there was a time in the last, probably in my experience, last three or four years where, you know, if you got called to the prep school down in the state, so that was, that was the, the big brand, you know, you got to chase the big brand and then they got there and realized, okay, we got to go back to the Mecca. I was already, I was already at the big brand. <laughs> You yeah. have to chase it. Um, so, to, right. so, so you go through there, you have your collegiate career, and now, you know, you get to the CWHL, the Pro League. How, how did that opportunity get presented to you? Um, yeah, that was an interesting one because uh, they, the year that I was going was the first year they were having a draft. And so I had actually missed the draft. I hadn't put my name in because I was actually going to go out West and play in the Western women's hockey league, which doesn't exist anymore um, for the Edmonton Chimos. Their coach had been um, kind of recruiting me quite heavily, which is uh, kind of different for a women's pro league. Like I know that that happens now, but at the time um, I'm not sure how 
I hadn't heard anything from any CWHL teams. So I didn't know what uh, the process was. So I decided to go out West and I moved out there. I lived there for two weeks. And before I left though, the CWHL uh, decided that they were going to have a second draft because the first draft, not everybody was a part of it. Uh, they, they realized that a lot of people had missed it. Um, so before I went out West, I decided to put my name in the hat for uh, the CWHL. And, um, but before I left, I didn't, I hadn't heard anything. So I was like, well, you know what, I'm going to go out West. Um, they recruited me heavily to go out there and play. And so that's where I'm going to go. And so I went out there and like a week and a half into their training camp, I got a call from the Toronto GM and she said, where are you in the world right now? Um, we're going to draft you. If we draft you, will you come? And I was like, well, it's a tough decision, but that's where I wanted to be. Ultimately it's closer to home. So I said, yep, if you guys draft me, I'll come. And then I got another call 10 minutes later from Brampton who said, uh, we're thinking about drafting you. Um, but if we draft you, you're going to have to come and try out. And if you don't make it, then you'll have to, you can just go back to your team out West. And I was like, well, crap, like Toronto's offering me, you know, the opportunity to be on their roster. So I was really hoping that Toronto would draft me just after that conversation. Um, and then it turned out that Toronto did. So I packed all my stuff. I went back out East and I jumped in my Tercel. Her name was Polly. Um, Polly Pocket. So it's about time you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I made my way to Toronto and it was the best decision that one of the best decisions I've ever made. Um, career-wise but career-wise and hockey-wise um I didn't realize how many doors would open for me uh in my career uh in my professional career as as a a working person um as as it did and so a lot of my relationships that I formed and that I built were came from people I met through the CWHL um which is how I actually got my job at Ryerson so uh, back in 2013 before the men's team. So, um, it's been, it's been really great to me and, uh, you know, it was unfortunate that it folded. It was, I thought literally, I thought it was April fools because I think it came out right around the time, um, last year, uh, because the, the league had taken so many positive strides from the first minute I got to the league to when it folded, I couldn't believe the difference in professionalism and, and what that brand stood for and, and how much hope it gave younger athletes that they had a place to play after university. So I'm hoping for, uh, for a league for those girls to, uh, to play in and, and for the future of women's hockey for sure. Yeah. And it, it's interesting too, cause it was making amazing strides and there's even the thing of, you know, I know some athletes were even thinking like, what, what would happen if the first 18 year old got drafted in that league. And by that time they're making some kind of income um, that's like appropriate. And, you know, just, just like how that, how that, um, how that event could possibly grow it even that much more because it hasn't been done before. It hasn't been seen. What, yeah. And it, it was at the last year where everyone was every, every rostered player was getting a guarantee of some sort of monetary contract or am I, am I getting that wrong? Um, I think that there was, um, 
definitely some sort of money for everybody. Um, I know that it wasn't much. Um, but it was a start. It know, was a start yeah, for to sure. get things going for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I knew that there were bonuses and, and that sort mm. of thing that, that went along with it. I don't know all the ins and the outs because at that point it had just been a, cu- a couple years removed uh, for me. Um, but yeah, during my playing career, we definitely did not have any uh, money, but it definitely, uh, now that I have to pay for hockey, um, I really, you know, not having to pay and getting our equipment and having our travel for the most part covered um, was definitely something that, um, you know, you shouldn't take for granted because most definitely most people on this planet have to pay to play. Um, but, uh, but definitely those girls deserve, um, deserve uh, some money based on how much effort and energy they put into their sport. They work just as hard as, as NHLers and, and um, you know, they, they play for the love of the game. And so I'm hoping that, uh, you know, a league can be sustainable and there's a business model out there that is sustainable for women's hockey because uh, the amount of work that they put in is remarkable. Yeah, there's definitely, there's, there was more purity in, in, in women's hockey and in women's sports in general, because you said about playing for the love of the game, like that's the, that, and it's, it, it's funny. I remember listening to a recording by Earl Nightingale, who that's like a thousand years ago. If, if you ever, if you have, or if you ever viewed in, you'll realize it's like from the forties and fifties stuff I listened to. But uh, uh, I remember him asking a question. He's like, what's wrong with men in today's world? And he said, men simply don't think, and it's still true. And, and when you look, <laughs> and when you look at the women, that women's league, you know, um, the, the potential and everything that was going well, like every, everything was being done right. The revenue sources were still, that was, that's always something to figure out every day of our lives, whether business or personal. Um, but it was making that progression, but that purity and that love, like I've never seen a league market so much of how hard its athletes are training and, and being accessible to the community. And, you know, there was a lot of hope in, in all that. So it, it was really unfortunate, uh, when it happened because it was one of those things where, and this is just, I don't know if it was maybe because the, the salaries um, got, there was more of them being implemented if that's what did it um, or what, but uh, it it was one of those things where you kind of hope there was some sort of way. And I know they have the, the dream gap tour, which I thought was a great idea. Um, but mm-hmm. to have a league, some sort of way to say, okay, something happened here. Things were going really well for a while. Now something's happened. What happened to make that, to make it go that way. Okay. Remove that deal with it in the background, but what's the next best step to pursue moving forward. And, uh, and I think that, that, that progression is being made now. I, I have a friend who's, uh, who, uh, who is in the uh, NHLPA, um, in their office. And, you know, it's something that's being focused on a lot more without a doubt. Uh, what, what do you think, um, is going to take for like, you know, a uh, national lacrosse league, um, is really successful with having a smaller fan base and, and lower salaries and all those guys, they work full-time jobs and that's really a part-time thing for them. Um, you know, the WNBA has got backing from the NBA, but they, their, their fan base, they do draw a lot of, uh, pretty good crowds and they go in smaller arenas. Um, you know, the NHL, um, that's kind of a gray area when Bettman's asked, you know, there's never an exact answer other than we're working collectively as a unit, see what good options when appropriate, we can put them out to, in a, 
mastermind articulate way with the vocabulary I have to get that out on his behalf. <laughs> but uh, what, what do you think is going to, um, you know, get that, get that back? Is it going to take like ownership group? Is it going to take the NHL? Um, what, the, there's obviously got to be a certain leadership role. And what, what do you think is going to bring hockey back, female hockey back in, uh, in Canada for, for a professional league? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to take a collaborative approach. Um, I don't think it's going to be just one entity that's going to make uh, the train kind of roll. Um, I think that, you know, if if a women's league is going to be sustainable, we need to have our fans uh, buy into it as well. We need butts in seats. We need to make sure that there are people there watching those games. I think the NHL has to be part of it. Um, I think there's going to need to be, you know, corporate sponsors who come on board as well. Um, you know, there's, there's gotta be some sort of multimedia approach, uh, TV deal in some way. I mean, uh, viewership is what's going to create a lot of, uh, a lot of that revenue. So we do need the viewers viewership of the sport, um, because the product is great. I mean, for anybody who watched, uh, the three on three, at at the all-star game uh, or the recent rivalry series, like you see uh, how good these women are. And, and, you know, someone texted me and said, is there hitting, like, is there hitting in women's hockey? And I was like, no, that's just how rough we play. It's called taking um, out the hands. Wink. <laughs> yeah. the hands. Uh, get an extra bump in there when you can. Yeah. Um, but I think it's going to take a lot of people pulling the rope in the same direction. And I don't think that that's happening right now. Um, I don't think the NHL will come on board when another league is still uh, operating in the NWHL. And, you know, if I operated a league, I think I would want the best players, the top elite talent in my league. So, and that's not what's in the NWHL right now. Um, all the top players are in the dream gap tour or they're overseas, um, you know, experiencing maybe a different lifestyle, uh, for a couple of years while this all gets, uh, sorted out. But yeah, I mean, I think that that league, as much as it's satisfying the needs of the local players, uh, in the U S right now, and, and some Canadian players are playing down there too, um, you know, let's, let's get one league going. And I think that that's what everybody can get behind. There's not two WNBAs. Um, you know, there's not two pro professional lacrosse leagues. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how it'll, how we can make it so that, you know, the women don't have to work. Um, we'll have to see how we can get there, uh, and just focus on their sport. Um, but it's going to, it's going to kind of take everybody and it's going to have, it's going to take people thinking and putting a priority on it. If it's a priority for people and if it's a priority for the NHL, then, you know, they'll put their time and their money into it and it's probably not going to make money for them for the first little bit. And that's just going to have to be a reality of that business endeavor. Well, and, and it's refreshing to hear that coming from you because I've talked to, and you know, it's usually the, the players who are still playing and and they're younger and they don't, you know, they have, you know, taking on life. Um, like this was something they really wanted to be a part of. And I understand that. Um, but, but there's, there's the, the two approaches. There's the one that you just explained where there's a lot of moving parts to make a professional league go on a 
continent North American uh, scale. And then there's the other side where the attitude is, no, the NHL should step in. Uh, all the teams should put money in. I should make a hundred grand, whether there's people in the seats or not, believe me, they'll come once they do this, it'll be worth it. And I say, okay, well, here's something after saying what, for one, what is that number? And I don't think there's a, there's an appropriate number to, to put it on because uh, you know, it's the value that anything in life, the marketplace, you get paid for the value that you bring. So um, let's say, you know, there's 20 players who start on the starting roster and then you have your, your uh, you know, your call-ups and, and, you know, people who are healthy scratches. Let's say there's 25 players on that roster and say, you know, for the first year, if this is, if there was huge financial backing, NHL banks, the whole nine yards, everyone's going to make a hundred grand just to get this going, to make it fair. And we'll figure it out. Say, say if that was, and I'm using round figures, like I'm not, you know, but say if that was to, to make it right, that's $2.5 million in salaries. Let's say there's six teams. That's $15 million in salaries alone. You haven't booked dice. You haven't paid coaches. You don't have the support staff. You don't have your equipment yet. You don't have your arena schedule. Like we're talking tens of millions of dollars that it would take to make that go on that, on that scale that the flip side, the opposite of what you're saying. And Mm -hmm. I I find, you know, and, and this goes back to something you had said earlier, you know, you don't realize what you have until you have to start paying for it yourself. Right. And, and that's the thing with owners too. And I, I remember, uh, Gary Bettman had, had said in an article that they ha- you have to understand the NHL is not perfect. There are teams in the NHL that lose money. There's um, Ottawa has the worst attendance. They barely get over 11,000 fans a game. Mm-hmm. And when even their league's not perfect, they have to figure out. And uh, the other thing is too, that's a league that's over a hundred years old. And mm-hmm. I, was, I, I had John Anderson, um, who's a former Toronto Maple Leaf uh, in the eighties on it. And we were talking before the show and he said, you know, people forget. He's like, I was a goal scorer in the eighties and I maxed out at 300,000 at my peak. He says, I had teammates who were making 50,000 a year playing every night and they work construction in the summers. And that was just in the eighties. So like 40 years ago, but still not too far removed, you know, like it's, it goes to show that it's not, uh, it doesn't look like the glitz and the glamour. It's yeah. not there. And even now the NHL is still having problems because they're saying, okay, top six forwards get anywhere from six to $12 million. Bottom six forwards, a million, if you're lucky, we're looking for people that will take 600, 700,000 and that's going to be a new issue. So there, there's so many things to go there, but I think at yeah. the end of the day, you're right. The product was fantastic. Those Clarkson cups were intense, you know, and, and to see those big crowds, like it was really going there. And I really do hope that uh, that yeah. s- something comes back and we can, you know, I can watch my niece play. My niece is 16, you know, if, and yeah. in, in when she leaves uh, her career, she, she wants to do some crazy biomedical engineering type things. So she might be in school for a little bit, but to be able to say, Hey, she got to play pro that, that'd be pretty cool, especially in yeah. hometown Toronto. So um, let's, let's, uh, let's up the ante now on the morale because that that's a topic that can kind of get you down a bit, but uh, Ryerson, that yeah. opportunity, First female coach in men's youth sports history. Tell me about it. How, how, how does that opportunity come? Because that's something that's going to be happening more and more, I think. And I think it's a great move uh, for women in sports and sports in general. Talk yeah. to me about it. Talk to me, Goose. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're funny. Okay. So uh, I started out at Ryerson in 2013 uh, with a skate training program. And that was basically 
its camps program. So we had summer camps, March break camps. We had a skating treadmill. It was a pretty, uh, a pretty one-stop shop for hockey um, in terms of dropping your kid off and you know pick them up at the end of the day. So I was uh, I was helping my boss at the time uh, with that. I was kind of her right hand man for a bit there, and. Uh, I, I was also working with Johnny Duco, who is the head coach at Ryerson right now, uh, my boss. Um, he was at the time the assistant coach with Ryerson men's hockey, and he was working part-time with the skate training program. So Johnny and I for two years would uh, work together throughout the day, but then also at night we had uh, skill development sessions that we had to go run together. And, um, you know, we, we formed a good, uh, good working relationship and, um, he's always been very supportive of my playing career. Cause at the time I was still playing and, uh, we talked hockey all the time because that was our life. It still is. Um, so I was kind of reaching a, a road block at Ryerson where, uh, I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go in with my career. And so I, uh, I had a meeting with one of my, uh, supervisors at the time. And we just chatted about, you know, what's, what's next for me? What's, what can I do here? Um, and I didn't want to leave Ryerson because I love it there. I've been there now going on my eighth year. Um, so I didn't want to leave. And uh, I thought, well, I looked at the female side and there was a list of coaches who were kind of in line for potentially the assistant coaching job there. So I was like, well, that doesn't seem like it's going to work. And then we chatted about the potential of the men's side of the game. And I'm like, well, I never really thought about that, but like, that makes sense. Like, why wouldn't I go for the team that has more room uh, for coaches? And so, also you started out in boys hockey too, that's right. to, as a player. And now you can translate transition to a coach, which is, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have learned a lot over the past four years. Um, I'm glad I was a little bit more naive jumping into that scenario uh, than, than I am now. Um, so it was, uh, it was literally, I just sent Johnny a message one day, uh, like a text message. And I just said, Hey, you know, like would love to potentially help out with the team next year. Uh, you know, I'd come out to even push pucks and be an extra set of hands at practice because we all know how hard it is to run practice with uh, limited staff on the ice when you're trying to teach, get the drill across, move pucks, set things up. You know, it's it, it can be daunting if you're alone or if there's just two of you sometimes. So, um, you know, he said, yeah, for sure. Like if there's an opportunity that comes up, like let's definitely have a conversation so fast forward about six months and Graham Wise, uh, the current, the head coach at that time, uh, was retiring from the program. So, and it was looking like Johnny was going to be the interim head coach, uh, of the team. So we had another conversation and the conversation was, Hey, what about a full-time assistant coach? Um, easy transition. I worked with Johnny for the past two years uh, we got along really well. I had worked with some of the guys on uh, on the team already through the camps program. We employed them. I worked with them on the skating treadmill. So, uh, and my personality is kind. I kind of fit in with the boys sometimes more, um, which, like from my childhood, uh, makes sense. Um, and 
you know, it, it seemed like it was just the right fit. I applied for the job. I got it. It was actually interesting because when I found out that I got the job and when it got released on social media, I was over in New Zealand at the time, uh, helping Lee side girls, hockey girls association, um, with a program they were running over there. And so I woke up in the morning and my phone, I had like 50 text messages and Twitter was blowing up and I was like, Oh, well, I guess it got released. So it was a pretty, uh, a pretty big deal, um, I think, for women in sport and then also just sport in general at the time. And I think I've grown to appreciate more how big that moment was because at the time I was like, I don't see what the big deal is. Like, I'm just a coach who wants to coach a hockey team. And it happens that I'm a female and the, the team is, a, is male. Um, but apparently it's a big deal. So, uh, going back, going back to what I said before, it's, you're a hockey player, you're a hockey coach, you're a baseball player, you're a baseball coach. It, you know, the yeah. gender has nothing to do with it. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's, it's the value that that person's bringing to the situation of that club. That's all that should mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I've learned a lot over the past four years, um, you know, coaching women and coaching men can be different. Um, it can be different in your approach. It can be different in terms of, uh, how they accept feedback and how, you know, they want to, uh, you know, how they want to incorporate kind of what you're teaching them. Um, so it's been, it's been really cool being able to coach men and coach women at the same time, because I definitely learn a lot, uh, from both of them. So something I have to get out before I forget, you said everyone's going, they think it's a big deal. And, you know, I've always said to it would, well, I was talking to John Anderson before, you know, he's got a lot of, a lot of amazing stuff that went on through his career. And I've known him for about 15 years now, his whole family, we were all great friends. And I grew up in hockey and I, I never looked at him like that's former NHL or John Anderson, AHL Hall of Fame coach, like, oh my God. And I think that's what happens when you grow up in the sport compared to the families that, you know, people like you, coaches like you and I will meet. Um, and, and they don't get it. They, they don't understand like, hey, like when we say, hey, this is kind of how things are ran in our sport, it's so foreign to them. And, and that goes back to what you said, like, you know, it's uh, it, for you, it wasn't a big deal, but for everyone on the outside, it was like, you know, it was bigger yeah. than the Leafs winning the Stanley cup because we haven't done that in about 50 some odd years. Yeah. <laughs> there you yeah. go. That's, that's fantastic. So the second yeah. part, the second part of the big deal thing. So do you walk in, you know, did you ever walk in and once ever and, and take the Ron Burgundy, Ron Burgundy approach and say, Corey Chevry, Ryerson Rams men's hockey and the person said, no, sorry. And then you did kind of a big deal. People know me. (laughs) Well, no, but my friends. I'm just teasing you. They love to, uh, because, you know, if you talk to any one of my friends, uh, they'll probably say that um, I'm very confident. um, I'm very sure of myself. And they'll probably chirp me for being, um, I don't know, they probably, they probably would think like, oh yeah, Corey's conceited. Not the case at all. Um, I think that I have to also uh, up my confidence game in terms when it comes to coaching men. 
Um, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different world because when you walk into a university men's hockey dressing room, they have all played five years in the OHL. They've all been coached by extremely high level coaches who may or may not be now in the NHL or, you know, have been in the NHL and now we're coaching them. So I find just like we were talking about a little bit earlier with how young the sport of women's hockey is, it's the same on the coaching side of it. So a girl who plays in the PWHL and then goes on to university may not experience a really high elite level coach until their university career or even in the professional ranks. Not saying that they're not out there and they're not coaching PWHL teams because there are some really good coaches out there, um, but there's just not enough of them. And so um, on the female side of the game, it's the same with, with coaches uh, on the men's side of the game. Like it's just been around for so long uh, on the men, the men's side has been around for so long uh, more so than the women's side. So you know, when I walk into a men's dressing room, um, I'm thinking, okay, you know, they've all had very high elite level coaches their whole career. Um, what can I possibly teach these guys that they don't already know? And so um, I find that I do have to kind of put that guard up a little bit in terms of, you know, this is who I am. I mean business. I'm a confident female who coaches men. And that's kind of the way that I have to be. Um, I've learned a little bit more over the past four years that, you know, I, I'm going to be that strong female presence, but it's okay to have um, really great relationships with these guys and show that you care and show that you're compassionate and, you know, that you understand where they're coming from um, as well, because I don't think they've ever received that either. Just as much as I've never coached men, um, up until this, you know, stint in my career, uh, they've never been coached by a woman. So that trust that needs to be formed between us is, uh, it's real and, um, it does have to happen. It's not something that you just walk into the dressing room and all of a sudden you're going to have their respect. Um, so back to, uh, the burgundy comment um no i haven't done that but <laughs> my friends do chirp me but i think i kind of have to I, I kind of have to live that persona a little bit um to to stay to stay involved on the men's side of the game like there's gonna be times there's been times through my career where the little subtleties no one is ever gonna say to me you're a female you cannot coach us i i They'd be dumb if they did that. Um, they'd be, they'd be it, gone. <laughs> exactly. So no question. it's the subtleties in, in behavior, really. And it's, it's kind of unpacking that uh, gender stereotype, that those gender normatives that we've created in society over the past 2,000 years, like that need to be unpacked and, and reversed and, and rewound a little bit, um, yeah. you know, that we're kind of working with. Yeah. And like you said, you know, to a hockey person like myself, you're a coach. What it's, it's part of life. Like it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's what you bring to the table and what I can learn from you as a coach that matters. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I love it too. Like, and I, and I, Jesse Cook was on uh, the show a couple of times in the last, uh, last week and a half. And he was talking about 
you know, um, the there's the role of the coach and then there's the relationship side of the coach. And there's so much more to offer. Like in this course I'm doing with London Real, uh, my coach is a woman by the name of uh, Kia Baker. And usually I'm a more, you know, call me out and I'll do something to spite you, you know, mm-hmm. t- type, type of thing. And that's how you'll get performance out of me. And that's how I'll, I'll, I'll really start to be like, okay, I got, so- I got someone who's got my back. Like, you know, they're on my side, even though they're, they're pushing me. And her approach, you know, she was in the military too. Um, she actually um, runs the uh, the female veterans podcast. It's a fantastic show for anyone who's uh, interested in listening to uh, th- about uh, females veteran stories. Um, and uh, and she's been able to get more out of me than any man has ever been able to. And again, I I don't I don't care male or female, but her approach. Maybe it might appear on the outside. It's a lot more, you know, um, calmer, a lot more intuitive, like, you know, softer, if you will. But then when she delivers it to me and I get the message, I'm like, I feel like I'm kind of in trouble right now. <laughs> when she sends me a, when she sends me a, a, a voice message, I'm like, uh Oh, it's okay. Okay. So I listened to your podcast and I want you to know, I love it. However, and then it's like, oh, geez, now, oh, boy, oh, well, I, got, I got to step my game up because I don't want to disappoint. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she's and she's found that with me because I can be I can be a lot of energy. I can be someone who will take on the world in one day and I can be someone who will just close off one day and just recoup and recalibrate, reload and then, you know, fire all my guns at once. And mm-hmm. it's, it's been so interesting because I've never had that approach before. And I feel so much more comfortable when I do start producing and performing whether it's with this podcast or with or with ohc or anything that i'm doing in my life it's 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 really powerful so okay so we we understand now that you know you're ron burgundy-esque on on perception but you're not using his methods basically is what we got into that topic there so um so um you know in your mind what what makes a good coach in your mind what's your definition of a good coach or and better yet what's your definition of a great coach yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. So I, uh, I think that uh, being able to connect with your athletes is really important. And that could look very different. Uh, you know, us coaches, we're all different ages, we're different genders. Um, you know, but finding that common ground where you can relate with your athletes is very important. I think that having a high expectation level um, is extremely important as well. I mean, I know that I can call my guys out if if I if I know that they're not doing the drill up to the the level that I see or in game if they're not, you know, giving it everything they've got because I know what they're capable of. Um, so setting a high expectation level is is very important and but then also being able to speak to that and be confident in that when you're approaching your athletes um you know they need to know that behind the scenes you're not cutting corners either you know i always think of it like hey guys like i'm gonna be here for you when you need me at the drop of a hat like let's have that mutual respect for each other that when i come calling and asking um for what you've got that you're giving me that same respect and same uh, reciprocated respect. And um, that has been really uh, beneficial for me as a coach. Um, I think being someone that, 
your players know uh, they can talk to. So being approachable is extremely important. Um, I don't think that every coach has that capacity to be approachable. I've played for coaches before who just look straight up mean all the time. Um, but I think if you build that relationship uh, with them, they know that regardless of the external appearance, um, you can still talk to them and, and, you know, still make a difference with them. Um, and I think, you know, great coaches find creative ways to, um, you know, battle the obstacles that are in front of them. And I think that if you can instill that in your athletes on, on the, on the ice, but also, um, just in life in general, I think that, you know, you're, they're going to have a lot of really great things, uh, to say about you when, when your time is done with them. And, um, I think it's, especially for us as, as a university coach, um, we always say we're educators first and we need to help them achieve their academic goals, uh, their athletic goals, but then also their personal goals and, and developing the person is, is just as important as developing the athlete. And I think that, you know, if we can send guys off to the working world as better people, and if they happen to get better at hockey along the way, then that's a bonus because, at the end of the day, some of them may go on to play pro. Some of them, you know, may start their uh, careers right away. Uh, we want uh, good people going out there and making a difference for the next generation, um, whatever that looks like to them. So maybe some of them will coach, maybe not. Um, but we want them to be, you know, good contributing members to the community. And and if we can can help in that development, then that's what we want to do. Fantastic. I love it. Uh, my second last question, because I don't, I know we're uh, sh running short on time and I know that you have a, a self-isolating life to get back to shortly. <laughs> um, Scotty Bowman is a coach that I followed a lot. Like I'm a, I'm a stats nerd. I'm a historian nerd when it comes to hockey and sports and all that stuff. Um, he, he put it in a great way to run a winning program you have to eliminate all the crutches and a crutch is anything that can be seen as an excuse yeah. uh, for staff, the, the players, the fans, anybody. What, what's your definition of, of, of crutches um, in a program and how, how, how do you go about eliminating crutches when you identify them in a program? Yeah, that's a really good question because I find at the university level here in Canada and I'm sure in the States too, I just don't have as much, um, as much experience there, but, um, you know, there are things that hinder us all the time, whether it be, um, how much money you have to offer your athletes to build a, a winning program. So, you know, some schools will say they can offer up to the maximum amount of, of AFA that they have available and other schools will be like, well, I only have $20,000 to work with to get the best players that I possibly can. Um, so, you know, that's one kind of thing that I know some schools, uh, even, you know, could lean on as, as, uh, as a crutch. Um, and then for us being a Toronto school, something that we've kind of had to change our recruiting strategy a little bit because it's so expensive to live here. Um, so we've had to recruit a lot of local talent who may or may not, uh, be willing to live at home and then commute to school. 
Uh, so that's something that we've had to kind of just change our thoughts on and, and strategize just a little bit, a little bit more to, to keep our program extremely competitive. Um, you know, facility, facility could be another one. We're fortunate. We play in the Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, the, you know, they, the four walls are the same and, and the roof is the same, but everything else has been updated and renovated. So we're very fortunate uh, to play in such a historic uh, building, but also a very modern building. So facility could definitely be something that holds people back or they deem it holds them back. Um, I mean, programs at your university as well. Uh, you know, I've never worked for a school or went to a school that had a kinesiology program, which is a, a major program that a lot of athletes like. Very popular. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's all these, uh, these things that kind of hold back or, or, you know, don't allow you to recruit, I guess, the top level players that, that you want. And, and I think that it's about being creative. Um, I don't always think that the programs with the most money, the best facilities and um, in the biggest cities and, you know, are, are, are always the ones that win. And I mean, that's why we play the game. Um, that's why sport is so amazing because anybody can win. And um, especially in hockey, when you have a goalie and not your players, your top players can't play all 60 minutes of the game. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think those are some of the things that, you know, we talk about as a program and, and I think that, you know, if your coaching staff is bought in, if your, uh, leadership group, um, your AD, uh, and all kind of admin support staff are bought in, uh, you can find creative ways to, uh, make sure that you're not blaming or, or, or resting on an idea that you just don't have enough of something. Um, but I think it's about being solution based and, and, and finding a way, even though there's going to be, there's going to be, uh, excuses that you can make throughout the, throughout your time. No, I got this thing, this segment called Scott's secrets to success. There's a lot of S's in there, by the way, and I'm going to give you one. You want to know how you, you want to know how Corey Chevy is going to bring the best program ever to Ryerson University. I'm going to tell you this and it will stay between you and I. I'll cut this out later. Wink, okay, wink. Let's, let's hear it. You got to do exactly what they did in Mighty Ducks 3. You recruit a whole championship freshman class and yeah. then you're, you're just going to run the table for four years. <laughs> you know what? That's actually a good idea. Let's, let's see. Yeah. Imagine if, imagine if you could do that. Hey, uh, who was the OHL championships last year? Uh, Guelph Storm. Yeah. Um, hey, what do you think? All you entry-level deals, uh, you know, think about just coming to Ryerson for a year and let's win a championship. Exactly, because there's all that, because a lot of them get compensated by, uh, by their post-secondary school money. So who's got the best deals? The team with the best, most deals and the most graduating players will just take y'all. We, we thought about it, so we know it can, it's possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, hey, now here's the, now to get back on, on the, the, the uh, more deep side of this, uh, we always end the show this way. Okay. Now, now look at me when I'm talking to you. I know we're only going to upload audio, but look me in the eye when I'm talking to you on this one. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at you in the eye. There you go. If the 16-year-old you was sitting across the table from you right now, 
here in 2020, yep. what advice would you give her moving forward in life? That's a good one. Um, Stumped I would you, didn't say, I? Yeah, <laughs> I would say uh, surround yourself with people who are going to make um, your life better and easier and they're always going to be in your corner. And I, and I don't mean just surround yourself with a bunch of cheerleaders because I think that um, there's a bunch of, you know, you could, you could say you have people in your corner, um, but those people in your corner need to be able to tell you uh, when you need to get your stuff together, when you need to get, pull your socks up. Uh, so really surround yourself with people who are going to support you, but are going to challenge you and, and make sure you're being the best version of yourself. Um, I would say probably take care of that little voice inside your head that always tries to get you down um, when things aren't going uh, the way that you want them to go. I think looking inward and taking care of the mental well-being is so important. And like we talked about earlier, not many people take the time because they feel like they have everything um, worked out already. And um, there's going to be people along the way and barriers along the way that are going to try to stop you from achieving uh, your dreams, but use those barriers and use those people as motivation um, to just kind of wave at them as you pass them by. Uh, Cause there's, there's always going to be the naysayers out there. And uh, those are the ones for me. Like I, I have like, one specific email that I actually deleted at the time because I was so mad about it, but basically an, an email from a parent um, telling me how horrible I was in, in, so, in so many different ways. And so every time I have success, I just think about that email and, you know, I just hope that that, person reads about whatever it is I'm doing in life because it's uh it's it's not like I bank everything I do on that one thing but that one moment definitely um that moment was one where they definitely tried to bring me down from what from what I was trying to achieve and I just didn't let that get in the way and I just kept rolling through and and now I'm you know much better for it to sum it all up you got to crush the inner bully you got to let the inner child run free and haters make us famous that's right i like all of that that is a really good way to put it that's that's nice i like that i'm trying my best with this every day of the week Corey. this has been fantastic i love that you came on the podcast i truly appreciate it i really hope that you'll be on future episodes we're going to be developing uh, coach panels in the coming weeks which i think you'd be a great asset to and uh yes bye you did a great, <laughs> yes, you did a great job today i really this has been an amazing experience for me Great. Thank you. It's so nice to meet you and thanks for thinking of me. And I'm definitely uh, more than willing and, and happy to come on to any future uh, podcast that you have. Excellent. I love it. This is Scott McDonald with the Real Experience Student Athlete Podcast, signing out.